Gen X Playback, episode number 26. And welcome to the Gen X Playback Show. It's your favorite show about the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We are the Funk Brothers. No, we're the Brothers High. I am Scott. And I'm Sean. And we are listening to none other than Buffalo, New York's own Rick James from one of Sean's favorite albums of all time. This would be uh, Street Songs. It, it was, yeah. And I bought that for Sean for back Christmas, for Christmas. Yeah. 1981 or was it 82? It was, uh, I think, 81. Yeah, 1981. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we were a couple of white kids in Nesville, <laughs> Pennsylvania, loving loving some uh, good R&B funk music, and Rick James was pre-MTV. He was about as big as it got back in the uh, early 80s. And you got this for me on vinyl. Yes, so, I, I mean, this is even pre-cassette. This is pre-me owning a Walkman. So you would have heard this blasting from my stereo. Absolutely. And we listened, this was one of those because you had just gotten a Panasonic stereo. Right, yeah. And it was, you know, at the time it was, I mean, it wasn't like thousands of dollars, but for, for a teenage kid, I mean, it was a decent stereo. It was certainly an upgrade from the old record players that we used to get as, you know, as little kids. So mm-hmm. it was certainly, you know, when, when you put a, it's amazing how the, the sound, how it sounded different from like our little clarinet record player to when you actually got a, a something that was decent, like a Panasonic. And you're like, holy cow, this sounds great. And I I cashed in, I think, all of my paper out money to buy that thing. Okay. Because as you remember, we were allowed to spend our tip money. Yes. But we had to put our the money we earned from the paper out in the bank. Yeah. And so this had accumulated over, you know, some time. And I was given the, the green light to go ahead and go out and purchase the stereo. Mom approved of this. So I went out and I don't know if she would have approved of Rick James being played on the stereo. Now, what do you remember? What store you bought it at? It doesn't exist anymore. Okay. I mean, it was it was more of a local store. I yeah. can't remember the name. Was do you it remember? Silo? Uh, maybe it was Silo. Okay. I mean, there was a chain. I mean, I bought a lot of stuff at Silo. A lot of a lot of electronic stuff. That and service merchandise were probably my two go to. It may have been Silo. Okay. It wasn't service merchandise. Yeah, Silo was was one of those places that sold a lot of like you know higher end stereo, you know hi fi stereo equipment and. That was, I think I got my, my stereo there. I think mine was, uh, I think I got a Panasonic also. Um, Probably the a, same a few, salesman was a, promoting a, them. A few years later. Yeah. And yeah, that, yeah, it, was, it was one of those, you had places like that where they were dedicated to selling mm-hmm. those types of electronics, which you really don't see much anymore. And I, I still kind of remember the salesman. I mean, he was kind of that, I want to say cliched, uh, like late 70s, early 80s kind of stereo salesman. That, okay. that was a thing. Was he a younger guy? Was he like, oh, Gil? He, no, he was a younger guy. Okay. And if you remember in Fast Times at Ridgemont yes. High, the, the Ron. Ron was a stereo salesman. Yes, he was. This guy kind of reminded me of Ron okay. You know, when I saw Ron a couple years later in the movie. Okay. He probably, uh, probably drove a nice car. Yeah. He probably yeah. dressed very well. Dressed well. Uh, and had nothing in the bank account. He probably spent it. <laughs> probably probably spent it all on his Trans Am. Had, had and, some feathered hair. Yeah. Well, those were the days, yeah. right? Yeah. So again, we want to welcome you to uh, what is the largest podcast in Nashville, Pennsylvania. We want to give that shout out to Buffalo, New York, because 
New York is is uh, again a, a strong supporter of the sh- of the Gen X Playback Show, and we want to give a special thanks to them. And uh, you know, having not been specifically to the city of Buffalo, you and I have kind of been up in that in that um, you know that area mm-hmm. that region where you get that lake effect snow. And, uh, you know, we spent a lot of times up in northern Pennsylvania, just below Buffalo. A lot of the radio stations that we used to listen to uh, when we went up to the cabin were Buffalo stations. And there was one that I remember. I don't know if you remember this. Uh, you probably do. We're talking like 1981, 1982. Okay. There was one radio station that we used to listen to out of Buffalo. And remember there were radio stations that were experimenting with DJ-less ro- robots. I 100% remember that. It was all automated. It was and, almost AI before there was such a thing as AI. And Buffalo, New York had one of those radio stations. And for us, it was, it, you know, it was kind of unique because we weren't, we didn't have that down where, down where we lived in Lancaster. And, but there, but I knew that that was a thing around the country. Like there were some radio stations that had this, it was an all automated uh, DJ format, mm-hmm. and I just thought that was that was very unusual. But I did. Well, we always liked the music because it was it was a straight top forty station. It was, and what I remember about it is you and I discussed it at the time that there wasn't a DJ, and it, we didn't catch on right away. But after a while, there would be this pre-recorded kind of the same spiel over and over again. Right. And I, I think I was like torn a little bit because you know we would have the local DJs that that we kind of liked, and you know they would have a bit of a a cult following you know we keep talking about christopher knight between the sheets you know (laughs) out of the philadelphia area uh with his show and you know obviously um you know with with the philadelphia stations there's some legends that you know uh, you know with john debella from wmmr and uh pierre robert and um but i think i kind of liked it back then because you got more music true and now i'm thinking back to the days of uh, hot hits 98.1 wcau Mm -hmm. They had the, the, they were the younger guys. They were the, um, the Bill O'Briens. Um, what were some of the other names? Yeah, uh, the Motormouth, Terry Young. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> Terry Young, that's right. Um, and Glenn Kalina, he mm-hmm. was another, he yep. was another guy. He, yep. he actually worked in Philly for a couple of decades after, after that. He ran, ran a station called 102.1, which ended, uh, ended up becoming WMGK, which is what it is now, which is kind of a classic rock station. Which is the one that Danny Bonaducci was on? Oh wow, he's been all over the place. He was on one. He was on Eagle One Hundred Six. That's where most of he was with uh, John Lander and the Nut Hut. That was in yeah. the early nineties, and I was a fan of that show. I used to listen to that every day. So I yeah. like the personality. Sure, I mean, I, I I do still like DJs having some control and and where there's interaction, uh, especially as we get more and more automated. Um, I I think it's kind of nice to have those personalities, but I I I can definitely understand the appeal. Now with, you know, things being cut a lot more because, like I said, at the time, I think we kind of liked it just because it was a really good station in Mm -hmm. that we were guaranteed to hear music that we liked. Yeah. And I think for you and I, and and probably for a lot of Gen Xers, is the the era of the people listening to the show strictly for the DJ. That that was kind of dwindling probably by the time we started really listening to the radio at that point I, I think so yeah in the 80s it was probably yeah. less of that it was more of a 70s it be- thing became a little bit more formatted i mean wkrp in cincinnati cincinnati is kind of the what you think of when you th- when you think certainly of that. what we think of yeah. sure i mean and and that was the 70s well you and i worked at uh <laughs> prime sports 1600 wpdc back in the uh, mid 90s yeah we and did. it wasn't 
any different than WKRP in Cincinnati in terms of the staff. And now there were no Lonnie Andersons no. uh, roaming around no. the, the room, but it was definitely, you had the Herb Tarlick type sales guy. Oh yeah. You had the- Les Nessman. Oh, uh, he was we didn't have a news guy, but that would, would have been our engineer at the time, mm-hmm. John Hess. And so yeah, there were many, they were colorful in a way that I'm sure they wouldn't want to be remembered as colorful. <laughs> Probably you not. You know what I mean? Yeah. All right, so that was uh, Sean and I kind of peeling the curtain back here for for about eight minutes. So, again, um, you know, last week's episode we we went sports. Now we're kind of going go back into another uh, going back into something we're a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more of our wheelhouse, which is we're going to talk about some music. So go ahead, Sean. We are, and you know, when I, I mentioned at the end of last episode with sports, everybody likes a somebody that that has a comeback, and I thought, well, who? loves a comeback more than fans of music because there'll, there'll be times where there'll be an artist and they might have a big hit and then they kind of go away and you forget about them and then all of a sudden they come back right and it's memorable because it's rare it's more likely you're one hit wonder and you just disappear and people barely remember you sure and but i think for for the examples that i have and those of you that are frequent listeners to the show know that sean and i don't compare notes that's part of what the show is is that we're hearing each other's presentations for the very first time. Intentional in that even though we were together before we went on the air, we're intentionally not talking about what we're going to talk about. I mean, we, we sort of loosely go over what the format's going to be, but we never discuss what our lists would be right. or who we're going to speak about. So you know, when, when you're hearing something from Sean, I'm hearing it for the first time and same thing, vice versa. So uh, I, I still think our list is probably going to be, we're going to have a couple of the similar names, but there's... I think this list is going to be more different than maybe you and I realize because there's times yeah. where you and I will do a list and it's like the, the variety show. Mm-hmm. You it, know, it we was, agreed on everything. But one. Yeah. Except but one on each of our lists. Yeah. yeah. So there was hardly anything that we disagreed on. But when it, when it comes to music, I mean, that's that's kind of the probably one of the few areas where I think, you know, because of, of the eras in which we grew up, you know, Sean being three years older than me and by the time we got to the end of the 80s, we, we kind of started to branch off into different areas. So I think that's where we, you're probably going to see a little bit more of a, of a difference between our taste is in some of the music. Now, 80s is probably pretty much all going to be in agreement. But I'm interested to see what you have to say about this because you gave, kind of gave me a little bit of your criteria on, on how you came up with your list. Right. So it is going to be a little different than what mine is. Right. So, and I didn't tell Scott this was going to be my criteria. I intentionally did it that way because I wanted him to come up with his own rules for selecting his list. And for me, when I sat down, I, I kind of initially, as I do with most of our episodes, I kind of just do a brain dump and kind of see where it, it takes me. And I have a two sides of a legal pad just filled with different names. And as I started to look at it, I started to kind of group things together. And I thought, all right, here's enough for multiple episodes. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go really hard with my list in saying, the artists that I select had to first have a hit or they had to have been popular before the 80s. Okay. And then they needed to have a comeback in the 80s. Okay. So I rule out people that, you know, may have had their first hit in 1980 and then in 1989 they come back. They they, they didn't make the cut for me. Okay. And also if somebody, they could have been, had a hit in the 70s and 80s and come back in the 90s, they're not on my list. Okay. Yeah, and there are some examples for me that would be that case. I think I, had a, I think I had two or three that ended up having songs in the 90s. 
So those will be a little bit different. Okay. Now I I chose I decided to include artists that had hits in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. And then ended up having well. a comeback. I, so I, the, yeah. we may have some similarities there. Right. So everything for me, like I said, is prior to 1980 okay. as far as when they first had to chart. And once again, maybe it kind of emphasize this, some of these artists may have had nice careers going on. It's not that they bombed and they're in some hotel room somewhere. Like I think Ozzy Osbourne did at one point when he gets <laughs> kicked out of Black Sabbath. He's just down and out. Sure. They're just people that might not have charted. They could have been successful touring acts. They could have had successful albums. But for me, and, and I'm not holding Scott to this because this is kind of, once again, my, my criteria, but initially they needed to have charted at one point, and then when they came back, they needed to have charted. Okay. All right. That's fair enough. And I'm not necessarily going to give you the exact chart, but every song that I picked, I did look it up, and they did make at least the top 40 at some point. Okay. All right. So do you want to... Yeah, why don't you go first? Let's okay. go with what you have, and then we'll switch over and do my list. All right. So I'm going to I'm going to kick things off with what is widely regarded by most people as, as the greatest rock and roll band of all time, the greatest musical band of all time, and that would be the Beatles. So... This obviously is Twist and Shout, originally released in the United States in 1964. So this is the Beatles, it wasn't Ferris Bueller. This ended up charting again. With, when it was in the movie Ferris Bueller. Bueller, Bueller 1986. Yeah. yeah. Which, and that's the thing with, as I said in some of our previous episodes, your history usually when you're young only goes back as far as your time on Earth. Right. And I know a lot of people that... I was associated with did not know that this was a Beatles song when it came out initially. Well, I mean, when it was in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. We knew who the Beatles were, but I know you'll... I've said this, told this story many times to you, is that when I used to work in there at Park City, my boss was a huge Beatles fan and said that the Beatles were the greatest band of all time, and I'm having an argument with him about Poison <laughs> versus the Beatles, <laughs> And everybody now is kind of you know we have a laugh about it now, but I was I was really I was really fighting on that one. Yeah, I, I used to do that as well, and that was not good, not good. <laughs> so obviously, you know, the Beatles are incredible. All right, they were incredible, but could any of them so like solo like CC Deville, <laughs> George Harrison actually? All right. <laughs> so that was the Beatles from from 1964, and obviously, you know, they broke up in 1970. Everybody sort of went their separate ways. So what I can honestly say single-handedly made me begin to appreciate the Beatles as a band and really kind of dive into their not only their music, but at all the core history of what the band was and how they got started and how they broke up, all centered around this documentary that came out in 1995. And it was run on ABC. And it was, I want to say it was like a four-part or four five-part documentary where they covered everything about the Beatles and they interviewed the surviving members. It was Paul McCartney, Ringo and George Harrison. And they, they were very candid, told lots of great stories and they, they basically covered the band from beginning to end. Well, this was a hugely successful documentary. I mean, it was viewed by millions and millions of people, myself included. And one of the, uh, at the end of it, they released this anthology so it was a little bit of a promotional vehicle to sell some CDs, 
which it ended up doing. It sold millions and millions of, of uh, CDs. But what it did was it, they released two songs, two songs that had never been released previously. And one of the songs, the, the, the first one to be released was this song from 1995, And this is called Free as a Bird. They used lyrics that uh, a song that John Lennon was working on before he died, before he was murdered in, in 1980. So basically what the, the surviving members did was they went in and sort of overlapped what John had already accomplished on tape, and they created this song. So in doing so, this song actually hit the top 10. This is the last top 10 song that the Beatles, as a group, officially ever got. Oh, it went to number okay. six. I, I could not have said that. And this was, uh, I know I, I bought this anthology after I watched the documentary. So it, it certainly put a lot more money into, you know, their pockets. But it was, it was a great documentary. And like I said, it... It single-handedly put my interest into the Beatles where I could kind of now agree with my former boss, Dave, and say, yes, the Beatles were the greatest band of all. So prior to the documentary, were you were you thinking about the Beatles or was that literally the moment you said, hey, maybe I need to check this the, the Beatles out? So I can, I can honestly say that, and I don't know if you were the same way, the music at, at the time was changing so much. In the mid-90s in the 80s and in the 90s you weren't looking back no no song was it was in the rearview mirror and you were looking for the next song to come out absolutely if a song was a year old it was gone right and and i and that's kind of the way my mentality was i didn't look back on i didn't start listening to 80s music again until probably mid to late 90s At, at that point i started looking back and kind of remembering some of the songs but up to that it was it was pushed forward it, it's uh, interesting that you say that because i i specifically remember it it, it was like, like 1995 and i loaded up all my cds that i had of that era of that music and i was like i'm done with that i'm not never going to listen to it again and i literally gave it to brent brubaker you remember brent brubaker <laughs> sure I did. yeah i saw so I, I literally gave him a box of you know who knows how many hundreds of cds i, I gave him it's like yeah i'm done i don't need to hear this music I anymore think you gave me a couple probably i was giving everything away i'm like i'm done i'm moving on to the next thing i think you gave me i think it was your tone loke cd oh, probably yeah uh, loked after dark i think yeah. i was the one I, I i know i got that plus a few others yeah like i said i was me. i was just giving stuff away because we came from the era as you just said where we didn't look back yeah I, and it's just funny that uh it's amazing to think about a song that was a year old i mean it would never get played on the radio it, it particularly you know top radio top 40 radio right it was not it wasn't happening and that's why whenever we would you know, uh, FM 97 on Sunday nights used to play like oldies music and you would hear the, a lot of the Beatles. You would hear a mm-hmm. lot of that early to early to late sixties, kind of early rock and roll stuff. British invasion, uh, Dave diamond who worked at FM 97 was big into that. So you're exposed to it, but it wasn't your cup of tea because you're waiting for 
the next Def Leppard album. You're waiting for the next Madonna album. You're waiting for the next Michael Jackson. You know, it's just like it was a constantly push forward mentality. I remember listening to what would have been our, our local uh, rock station, which would be a Star View 92. Sure. And they would oftentimes have on a certain day or a certain time of the day where they would play some classic artist mm-hmm. and it may usually on that station is more likely going to be led zeppelin or the rolling stones or you know the who and it, but they were and they were playing you know current rock music at the time and i just remember i'd i'd sit through it and i wouldn't necessarily i, I didn't want to hear it but i heard it you know i got exposed to it and it's something where then I gradually started to appreciate it after a while. It's funny you say that because I think that may have been the time when I started when I started driving for a living, and I'm it's basically me and a and a truck and a radio, and I'm doing my job. I'm not talking, you know. It's just I'm in by myself in the in the vehicle. I started listening to uh, WMMR ninety three three, and I would listen to Pierre Robert at lunchtime, and Pierre Robert would always. I almost kind of feel like Pierre was my professor. In rock history. Sure. And Pierre would always play music that I never was really, had really given much consciousness to in the, in the past. I knew who the, I knew who the groups were, but then he would kind of give like a little backstory, tell a little story about the band or the song. And, uh, you know, I started to, you had mentioned before about, about DJs kind of losing their influence over the years. He's still one throwback where, He's going to be able to do whatever he wants, I think, because he's been around for such a long time and he's a legend. Um, but based on Pierre's suggestions, got me say, "Oh, you're right. These guys are pretty cool." So you know, it's like I was going based off of what the DJ was. No, that, that's that's a very good point because I used to listen to Pierre Robert as well, and it was the sort of thing where you learned it's it's like like he was your teacher, like, mm-hmm. like he was your professor, and he's kind. What and that's you know one of the the valuable things when you do get an education is you get exposed to things that you might not have normally checked out on your own. You're not necessarily going to read that book or, or investigate, uh, you know, something, but when, you know, when it's kind of required of you, or at least in this case, when Pierre Robert is kind of talking about it and he's making it interesting Mm -hmm. and, and it's kind of like, like forming your taste a little bit. And what I liked about Pierre, I mean, not an episode about Pierre Robert, but he was, he had, he had a lot, it was very eccentric right mm-hmm. it was eclectic mm-hmm. in how he would approach it and i think as a result i'm a little bit that way now because you're allowed to like different genres that totally seem to conflict yeah and pierre's you know he would promote guys like robert hazard yeah next to guys like led zeppelin right and they couldn't be any more different i mean robert hazard was you know pure pop music and and led zeppelin was pure hard rock it, it, but yet it was it was okay to like both you know, you know, Pierre was that type of guy. He's like, I, I like them both. Well, I remember a number of years ago, before the Spectrum got torn down, mm-hmm. uh, before David Lee Roth joined Van Halen again, he had Pierre through his big birthday bash at the Spectrum, and he had the Hooters and David Lee Roth. Mm-hmm. I mean, completely different, but he would have easily played them next to each other. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, good citizens, <laughs> uh, our first selection here. In the, uh, I call them the comeback kids, was, were the Beatles. Oh, how about that? Twist and Shout from 1964 and Free as a Bird from 1995. Both songs hit the top 10. My next artist is, I don't know if Sean gave much thought to this particular singer. Uh, kind of burst onto the scene, came from sort of music royalty. 
and at a very young age had quite a bit of success and then she disappeared for about 10 years and i'm talking about natalie cole Mm -hmm. natalie cole uh was she sort of dethroned aretha franklin around this time as kind of the new fresh kind of the whitney houston of her era is this like 78 ish this was 1975 oh 75 yeah okay I, I, I really remember hearing this as a kid. And Natalie Cole is a singer that I have always liked. I'm too young to remember when this when this song came out. But when she did make her comeback in the 80s, I was I liked everything that they that was released. I she just has obviously with her dad being Nat King Cole, I said music royalty. But Natalie has an amazing singing voice Mm -hmm. and she kind of dropped off the scene because she unfortunately went through an unbelievably harsh life to the point where she was destitute and selling herself as a prostitute to pay for drugs got herself cleaned up and somehow got herself back into the recording studio and came out around 1987 so the song I'm going to play for you is one of my favorite Natalie Cole songs of all time and it came out in 1987 it wasn't her first hit song back the first one that she did she did a um a version of pink cadillac Mm -hmm. and that was a bruce springsteen song but she made it a hit this was the next song that came out after it it's a slow song but i think we've already established that i've been a sucker for slow slow songs over the years and this is i live for your love what year was this 1987 okay no no i i remember it so the song this will be was that her last hit before this one she had a couple of kind of soul chart hits okay but nothing on the pop charts not at that level yeah no she won i'm pretty sure she won a grammy that year in 1975 well this got a lot of airplay now this song went to number only went to number 13 on the Billboard 100. Okay. But it was all over adult charts. It was all over R&B charts. I believe it went to number 1 on the R&B chart. And Natalie Cole it was I mean you want to talk about bringing yourself back from the dead. She was destitute at mm-hmm. one point and somehow managed to get herself back and and end up with a very successful career. And then she kind of did uh, the where she sang to West with her, her deceased father. Correct. Through, some, and, through, through the technology. And that was sort of it was kind of unique for its time. It came out in 1993. Mm-hmm. came out right around the time Amy and I got married. And yeah, it was great. I, as a matter of fact, we danced to Unforgettable at our wedding. So mm-hmm. it was that, it was certainly something that was popular at that at that time. So you, you, are, you are correct in thinking that she did not uh, she was not on my radar. Uh, I mean, that's perfect. I mean, that's kind of what I was hoping by us not discussing and giving you know the same parameters to each other that we come up with things completely different. And I never would have thought of Natalie Cole. Yeah, and she to me is uh, you know like I said, I call these the comeback kids, and some of them, so a lot of these stories are they they lose their way, they lose their success, they kind of disappear off the map. And it's because they've fallen on hard times. Mm-hmm. 
So to see them actually come back and do well, it's it's kind of a reclamation story, and it's 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 a good story for somebody like Natalie Cole. Now, unfortunately, because I, I think some of her health problems that she experienced in later life came from that you know that ten year period where mm-hmm. she just really struggled. Um, but she actually she left herself left a, quite a legacy of music for her name. I mean, one of my favorite Christmas albums is a Christmas album she put out in the uh, early two thousand. So. Just a wonderful singer and a, a great singing voice, and uh, you know, I thought it's pretty cool for to go back and see how popular she was in the beginning, and then she was able to get it back. And that's the perfect example of a comeback, and not only just with a comeback musically, but also with you know bringing her life back as well. So that no, that's a great choice. All right, so that was Natalie Cole. Uh, the first song was "This Will Be an Everlasting Love," still played at weddings to this day. It's one of the more popular cake cutting oh. songs. Okay. And I Live For Your Love, which came out in 1987. So my third artist is somebody that was considered very much on the cutting edge in the late 70s into the early 80s. Of course, that's Debbie Harry and Blondie. It is. And I'm sure everybody who is listening to the show probably probably knows you know, this song in particular. So, again, Blondie was... I wouldn't say they were at the top of the industry, but they were probably one of the best-known bands when this song of came that out? era. Absolutely. Well, this was part of the uh, American Gigolo, right? Yes, it was, with Richard Gere. Sure. And this, goes, this song went to number one. Uh, in 1980 so they were kind of I, I guess you could say they were probably at the peak of their popularity at this point uh, you know Rapture was was coming out at this time Call Me so it, and these were number one songs so they were uh, they were one of the preeminent bands of, of this era and then you know the, the main songwriter uh, Chris Stein Chris Stein gets, gets ill you know he gets sick so the band just kind of halts. And Debbie Harry and Chris and I were in a relationship at the time. And they decide to take care of each other. And fortunately, Chris Stein is able to nurse himself back to health. But Blondie's pretty much done at that point. So uh, I know you and I weren't huge Blondie fans. I liked it. I liked I mean, I liked some of the yeah. stuff. Like this song I liked. Yeah. But I wasn't somebody that was going to like hang a Blondie poster I, like I mean, there were some people that really were into Blondie, and because uh, they kind of came from the punk scene, and they crossed over, and they were able to do it successfully. They were not a band that I ever owned anything of theirs, other than your Chipmunk Punk album, <laughs> which I still have, <laughs> which which had uh, Elvin the Chipmunks doing a version of a Blondie song. Sure, yeah, that, that <laughs> I played that album. Not that long ago. What, it was which, Christmas which, song, time. Which, which, which Blondie song did they cover? It was this one. Oh, it was that one. Okay. All yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was this I one. I think it, you're, yeah. you're right. It was. Yeah. So it was, this, is, this was Call Me from 1980, number one song in America. Now, so Blondie kind of disappears. You know, Debbie Harry tries to launch a solo career. She had some success in Europe, but as far as here in the United States, she's, you know, she didn't have nearly the career that she did with Blondie. So Blondie kind of goes into the vault and they, they disappear. Well, 
Now we're coming into the end of the 90s. We're getting ready to turn over into the new millennium. And all of a sudden, there is this song that comes out. And I remember listening to it. And I'm going, holy crap, that's Blondie. And this is a song from 1999. And it's called Maria. It didn't really do a lot on the charts, but it hit some radio airplay. She moves like she don't care. So this shows, Scott, that you and I aren't as different with this as you might have thought. Oh, really? Uh, not on my list, with, uh, but, and it wasn't Call Me. I was looking at some other songs, but Maria was the one that I was going to play okay. if I did their hit. So yeah, I, I was aware of this, okay. and I liked it. And I think I appreciate the band, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this comment again tonight in our, during, this, during this episode. I appreciate a band that stays relatively true to their original sound. Right. Yet the song comes out 20 years later and still is a popular charting song, which lends to my theory that good music is good music. It, it still sounds kind of like that time. It sounds like it, Blondie's. It, it, it's got, got that attitude. It's got a Blondie sound, but it also has kind of that mid-90s chord sort of sound. When did you say this was released? 1999. Yeah, or, oh, so late 90s. So it, it's Blondie modern, which is kind of what you would hope for. Right. But, I mean, you know, Debbie Harry, who I, I believe she had some struggles with her voice, or, you know, during the downtime. But she comes back, her voice is strong. Obviously, it sounds a little bit more mature than, than it did 20 years earlier, but you know who doesn't at that point? And I, but it sounds good. It's strong, it's clear. And I thought the band, it was listening to this band play, I think I, they performed on like the Howard Stern show or something, and I listened to them perform it live. And I thought, you know, these guys are pretty good live. I never saw them in concert. Right. But these guys are pretty good live. You can, so you, you appreciate them as musicians and say, hey, after all these years, these guys still have the chops to, to sound good. Right. The American Gigolo uh, uh, soundtrack and uh, Call Me, was that like 1980-ish? American Gigolo was 1980. Yeah, that's why they didn't make the cut. I mean, okay. literally, that's the only reason. Because okay. I, I remember kind of looking at that song and I thinking, well, you know, they have a hit in the 80s. And, of course, they had... Uh, they had you know, Rapture, so that was in the eighties. So, but no, that you know, I totally agree with that. Yeah, so that was that was my third artist, and that was the band Blondie, and the first song was Call Me from nineteen eighty, and the second one was Maria from nineteen ninety nine. That only hit number eighty two on the Billboard one hundred, but it was at that point we're starting to see a kind of a split in charts. So, if you're an older group, the chances are you're not going to be placed into the billboard 100 you're probably going to be placed into the adult contemporary right. or and so this one in the adult contemporary hit number 14 okay so it was a major hit for for blondie to come back in 1999 so that was number three for me uh, uh my fourth artist was a trendsetter i believe in, in a number of ways and kind of led to the comeback trail for she kind of blazed it for artists to come forward and so i'm going to play the first hit song one of the last hit songs from 1967 number one song in America what you want, baby, I got 
the Queen of Soul, Miss Aretha Franklin. And this song was not actually not originally written for her. This was a this was a cover, surprisingly. Didn't and know that. I believe the cover the original was sung by Sam Cooke. Okay. And Aretha Franklin certainly made it her own. So I came very close to putting Aretha Franklin on my list. The reason she did not make my list because I assumed you were going to put her on the list. <laughs> and the only question is, or the only question I had was, which songs were you going to pick? Because okay. you didn't pick the song I was going to go with. Okay. For the for the for the first one. For the, the first one? one. Okay. Which one would you have picked? Think. I, which I like that from the Blues Brothers. So that that was, and that was a hit before the Blues Brothers. It was, yeah. So. I mean, that was what I was going to go with. So let's see if you come up with, with the second one. I guarantee you're not going to pick the one I was going to go with. You still owe them money, fool. <laughs> or they still owe you money. It's a great yeah. movie. <laughs> All right. So, um, you know, Aretha was still cranking out albums into the mid-70s. I had mentioned before that Natalie Cole sort of was the fresh singer on the scene and kind of like nudged Aretha out of that top, position as the top r&b you know female artist Mm -hmm. in in rhythm and blues music at that particular time so unfortunately for aretha she just kind of i guess the music at her of the time sort of became a little dated you know she wasn't getting on board with the disco era she you know a lot of artists from the 60s and 70s struggled in that early 80s where they were trying to find out whatever sound was going to become the next popular thing so Fast forward to 1985, and music executive uh, Clive Davis, who is sort of you know is a legend in the music industry, the man with the golden ears, kind of uh, plucked Aretha Franklin out of obscurity, and he he said to her, "I think you still have a voice that people want to listen to." He said, "You just need to kind of clean you know modernize your sound a little bit." And people will be drawn to your to your singing voice again. So here it is, 1985. Well, that sounds like 1985. It sure does. So, I, you know, every time I, I listen to the song, I think about the music video. Mm-hmm. And it's essentially her driving around Detroit. So it's got some cool shots of Detroit. And it made Aretha Franklin a star again. It did. And, you know, at this point, she's she's in her 40s. She's in her early 40s. Back then, if you're in your 40s, the odds of you... Being a pop star? Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, Tina Turner... Pretty small. Tina Turner had, had done it, you know, a, about a year or so before with Private Dancer. But she never really stopped uh, trying to, to make her mark. And she may be on your list. Um, She's not, because I and, thought she'd be on your list. She, Tina Turner... I, I chose Aretha Franklin okay. over Tina Turner. Just because... I, Tina, I thought it was too obvious. 
that's that's, that's kind of where I was. But Aretha, to me, I just because of what I learned about Aretha and Clive Davis, the fact that Clive Davis kind of sought her out and said, "I'm going to make you popular again. You have a beautiful voice. I'm going to bring you to a new generation." So she comes out with this album, "Who Zoom and Who," which, by the way, Scott was the song I was going to play. Okay, I was going to go think and and who zoom and who, and of course she did the, the duet with George Michael, which also went to number one. That that actually came out before this one. Did it? Yeah. I knew you were waiting. Yeah, and so this was a, uh, and this one ended up going to number three, finished number three on the charts. So it was a major hit, and Aretha ended up releasing three albums in the 1980s that were very successful, and they had chartable songs. And it all started from kind of this comeback album here. Oh, this was incredibly popular. You know, but like you said, it it modernized the sounds definitely of its time. Mm -hmm. But over the years, even though you listen to it and go, oh man, this is 1985. But I like that. It's still likable. No, I I, I like the fact it says 1985. Yeah. it was a, as you know, I, when we talked about the, uh, when we had the episode where we, we did uh, the, the countdown from 1987, mm-hmm. um, I think my comment back then was every song just kind of made you happy. Yeah. And, you know, that's, hearing music like that, I mean, you know, Clive Davis knew what we wanted at the time, and, well, I mean, like 17 years old, 16, 17 at the time, I, I, that, I loved hearing that music. Yeah, it was, it was great fun background music or drive around the car or yep. yep or if you're if you're watching mtv it's on in the background playing cards with your friends sure. or, or doing anything you always had mtv on in the background because you know something came on it would you know turn your head or draw mm-hmm. your attention yeah and then you pay attention to it and then you go back to your card game or something so and, and one of the reasons why i wanted to do a show like this with the comebacks is because uh, there were many artists aretha franklin being uh, i think right up there among them who was she was brought up in an era where you know the the appearance the package as far as what MTV was putting out there wasn't emphasized you know she was a bigger woman mm-hmm. she wasn't going to be the, uh, the 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 pretty little pinup that some of the the artists that would come later on I mean like Whitney Houston incredible voice but she was that young you know pretty pretty little thing mm-hmm. Aretha Franklin came in as a middle-aged woman you know like I said a, a bigger lady and it didn't hold her back no and i thought and they did a they did a smart way of promoting her where the emphasis was on her talent she wasn't trying to be young and trendy right because i think had she tried that she would have failed right even though the music is kind of young and trendy the sound her image wasn't it was sophisticated it was this is the this is the sassy queen of soul yeah she was she was the kind of the you know the queen has come back the the cougar of (laughs) of the uh of that era so yeah okay yeah so that was my that was my fourth artist aretha franklin respect from 1967 freeway of love from 1985 my fifth artist is somebody who had quite a bit of success early on and i'll play the first one all right so we have the first one that that was initially on my list that that, so i've made a larger list in case we have some crossover sure so this is the first one you have Walking down the street, pretty woman, the kind I like to meet, pretty woman. This is Roy Orbison and Oh Pretty Woman. 
and that is from good old 1964. And Roy Orbison, reading a little bit about his career uh, through the history of Sam Phillips, who was the original founder of Sun Records, which was known for the the famous artists that came out of there, such as Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee Lewis, of course, Roy Orbison, Carl Perkins. Carl, Carl Perkins. There was a lot of um, you know a lot of greatness that came out of there. Roy Orbison struggled in the beginning. He had been with Sun for a number of years before he actually had some chart success. This, of course, going to number one. But Roy Orbison, kind of a unique-looking guy. Oh, yeah. Uh, always wore the dark glasses. Always had the very... Uh, he'd been dyeing his hair jet black from his early 20s. And so he kind of had this... I don't know. It was a different look. He had a very pasty complexion. He did. Yeah, it was kind of like, what would happen if Mick Mars from Motley Crue... <laughs> Kind of clean himself up and, and got a shorter, like a Beatles haircut. Yeah. And that would be uh, Roy Orbison, but... Well, I just remember it was always such a stark contrast that his pale complexion, very pale complexion, very dark hair, and he I never saw his eyes. He always yeah. wore the sunglasses. He always did. He was born and raised in Texas, and you know you can kind of hear that little bit of that Texas twang, twang yeah. in, in his voice. Great song. It's been covered... How many how many times I remember Van Halen did they did a great version of they Pretty did. Woman in the uh, in the early eighties off the diver down we mentioned Van Halen again so <laughs> every episode baby <laughs> but uh, you know that was that was Roy Orbison from nineteen sixty four the number one song of the of that time which is Oh Pretty Woman so I, you know I was familiar with this song and then in nineteen eighty eight there is a you know four guys this uh, was a four or five. Uh, it was Jeff Lynn, it was Jeff Tom Lynn, Petty, George Harrison, George Harrison, Tom. Roy Orbison, and and uh, so it was five, five, and yeah, Bob, Bob Dylan. Dylan, yeah. So they come out with the Traveling Wilburys, and they they release this album, and they don't they gave themselves like nicknames, um, handle handle me with care, and end of the line are I love those songs I I I have them currently, and then after that, uh, Roy Orbison dies because mm-hmm. they were planning on doing more. That that group of guys, they were a super group. Well, the, there was a volume two, right? right. That came out later on without him. Correct, and because they, they they originally wanted to do more, they liked working with each other, and they were going to come out more. But but Roy Orbison passes away while the Traveling Wilburys were sort of promoting, and and their album is coming out and it's getting some traction. And Roy Orbison here had cut a solo album of his own music, and so. The Wilburys are going good. He dies, and then after he dies, his album gets released, and then he actually has, you know, posthumously, a song that was on that album ends up becoming a huge hit. It goes into the top ten in 1989. Every time I look into your I see love that money just can't buy One look from you I drift And I think you made you made a good point Sean when you meant when we talked about um Blondie and how the song Maria it had a Blondie sound but it also had a little bit more of a modern touch to it right and to me I think if you listen to Pretty Woman and you got it, which is what this song was, 
There's a lot of similarities, but it just has enough of a tweak to it to kind of bring it into the current stratosphere at the time, which is 1989. Well, when I hear this song, and I, because this is one I would have played had you not played, and you listen to it, you can just hear Jeff Lynn all over this. I mean, it has that Jeff Lynn sound, especially yeah. the drums. And, you know, that's kind of the brilliance of Jeff Lynn. Uh, you know, f- former lead singer of ELO. Then he goes on and he's, he works with Tom Petty, most famously. Mm-hmm. Uh, other artists as well, but just that, that it's, I, I can't even describe it. It's, it's almost a throwback sound, which fits Roy Orbison perfectly. Yeah. And, yeah, because it's not like he was trying to be something different. He's basically singing, like if you took the music away and he sang it a cappella, it would sound like he was singing it, to Pretty, pretty Woman. Woman. Yeah, yeah, there's not that much difference. But as you said, the arrangement yeah. is certainly a little bit more modern. And Jeff Lynn is that in orche- a name. That orchestral sound in the background, sure. which ELO was that known was for. ELO. And I don't think Jeff Lynn gets enough credit for his career. Oh, he's a monster. He's, he's one of the all-time greats. And you know, we talk about great producers, great bands. I think ELO in the United States... I think they're either tied with Journey or, you know, know, those two bands have the most numbers of number two hits or top ten songs without a number one. Oh, really? Is that right? Yeah, that that they never cracked number one, but very prolific career from from a guy, Jeff Lynn, and and he's certainly deservedly in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, and I I remember when this came out, as you said, it was 1989, you know, and it was kind of surprising. And I remember when the video debuted on, on MTV, and, and I was like, Roy Orbison, I thought he passed away. And then they they did a nice job kind of with how they incorporated him into the video. And it it is something that when I hear it, when you play it for me, it sounds much like Aretha Franklin's Sounds 1985. This sounds 1989 to me. It does. And that's why... I sort of went with these in a certain type of a specific type of order because I think Aretha Franklin based on the conversation you have with Clive Davis and it came out and was successful. I think it gave a lot more confidence to some other older singers because they probably figured they were washed up. Sure. That why would they want to put out new music? And why would you want to get embarrassed and, and laughed at? Because pop music is is a, a young person's game. I, I honestly, I really think Aretha Franklin kind of gave that confidence back to some of these older bands that they can release new music again. Sure, and Tina Turner because you know she did it right right around the same time. Right, and which leads me into uh, my sixth group. Now these guys have been. I think they sort of gave up on original material. They were a huge touring band, as they had been from the, from the time that they you know began in the early '60s. So in the, in the mid '80s, everybody knew who the Beach Boys were, mm-hmm. and they were always one of the highest touring acts in the concert series, especially in the summer. But they really hadn't released much, if any, new music uh, for probably about 20 years because the driving force behind the the Beach Boys music, in, in particular the writing, was Brian Wilson. And Brian Wilson had a very famous uh, bout with a nervous breakdown in the late 60s. It's kind of shut down for a long time. Yeah, I, as a kid, I remember watching like a news story interview with Brian in his bedroom because mm-hmm. he wouldn't get out of bed. I remember that. And he's wearing pajamas. I remember that. And just as a, and I was pretty young at the time, and because this was a big deal. Here you have this 
everyone thinks he's one of the greatest writers of all time, and he just won't get out of bed. Yeah, it was... Who who did the interview? I don't was remember. Was it Tom Snyder? It, it could have been. I mean, it's possible. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, because I remember that. They they were making such a big deal. Brian Wilson is granting an interview. Right, yeah, letting him into his house. Yeah, and I and like, who's Brian Wilson? <laughs> right, right. And why is, that, why is that old guy wearing pajamas and just, like, hanging on bed? <laughs> but, you know, the Beach Boys and... Many, many bands in the 60s that were competing against each, you know, make no mistake about it. The bands may have been friendly with each other, but there was a competition going on, especially between the Beach Boys and the Beatles. And I remember uh, reading in my book about the history of the Beatles that Paul McCartney and John Lennon were pissed when this song came out because they both said it's bloody brilliant. This is this because there's so many times you know speed changes in this in this song and so many different sounds it's like how did he even think to throw this all together and make this incredible incredible song ah because brian wilson was on the edge of insanity (laughs) yeah that's true so if you listen to pet sounds that the the whole album pet sounds it's pretty amazing and it's it's very creative and knowing now what i know about brian wilson i kind of think that like oh he's there's a there's a fine line between genius and insane. Sure, yeah, and and like I said, I mean, I almost didn't put them on the list because the Beach Boys never really went away, like as far as a touring they did, band. But they weren't on the charts. They were always kind of relevant and current. They were in commercials. And, you know, when you play that, I think of the Sunkiss, you know, orange soda commercial. They they did, um, you know, a song with the Fat Boys. Mm-hmm. Wipeout, and, and that came out right before. I don't know. Maybe that gave them a little bit of a push, a little bit of confidence that. Hey, you know the the younger fans are are a little bit more accepting of us. So then there's a movie that comes out by the name of Cocktail, starring mm-hmm. Tom Cruise, and here is one of the more famous scenes of the movie. They're down in the island, and all of a sudden, it's the Beach Boys, and they have a new song out, and it's great. We transition from New York City to as the now the scenes change, and we go down to the islands. This is what's playing exactly. Now there's some beach fan purists that really hate the song because um, in terms of lyrical content, it's not the most poetic song in the world, but it still has that very uh, clear, definitive Beach Boy sound. And the video, the the ensuing music video that comes out features a very young kind of assistant Beach Boy in John Stamos. Correct. I'm sure it didn't hurt that he was a part of that process. Not at all. So it's a little bit smart marketing, and guess what? You got a number one song again. And this is a a song that, you know, is kind of singing about the beach, and they're the Beach Boys. I don't know about you, but I can't help, every time I hear this, to mentally I go to that type of, you know, down, you know, going to the beach. It's, it's somewhere summertime. There's you're wearing a Hawaiian shirt and there's sand. Well, around this time, I was pretty smitten by Elizabeth Shue. Oh yeah, and she was beautiful in this movie. Absolutely. So I can't, I can't not listen to the song and not think of Elizabeth Shue in the movie. It's not a bad uh, thought. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the I Beach was, Boys. You, you saw the. Um, the, the, what Cobra Kai when she yes. makes a return appearance sure did were you as happy as I was that she has <laughs> aged well 
Oh, she looks. I was like she overjoyed. Looks, she looks incredible. You know, yeah. some people like when you know celebrities like bottom out and they're terrible. They get like some sick uh, pleasure out of it. But I was like overjoyed that she looks really good as a middle aged yeah. woman. I mean, she always seemed like you know the coolest chick on stage. You know, it just um, yeah, just seemed to have such a. A personality that'll kind of leap through the camera. She was the know, babysitter. Yeah. So uh, that was the Beach Boys from 1988. Two number one songs from 1967 and 1988. Uh, that's my sixth group of the Comeback Kids. Hello, everyone. It's Scott from the Gen X Playback Show. We've reached the end of the first quarter on our episode on musical comebacks. That's right. I said first quarter. This is our first four-part episode that we've done since we started the podcast. And who doesn't like a great comeback? And we covered six of them here in part one of our episode on great musical comebacks. And there's plenty more to come. Hopefully you enjoyed the first six that we covered. And a little bit across the, the spectrum of music from the early 70s, to the early 60s when you're talking the Beatles and Roy Orbison but there's a lot more to come and hopefully you'll stay tuned as we take some time on this one and like I said this is a four-parter so we're gonna spend about an hour in each part I have my second half coming up next week and then Sean has two episodes as well we really want to thank everybody for tuning into the Gen X playback show Again, it amazes us how much the show has grown in the last six months. We started the show back in July of 2022, and here we are just coming up on a, almost on the year anniversary. So in a year's time, our audience has just kept growing, not only in our local area, but it's also grown across the United States and also across the world. So thanks for tuning in. And hopefully you are enjoying this one on the great musical comebacks of the Gen X era. So for my brother Sean, I am Scott. We're the Brothers High. And you've been listening to the Gen X Playback Show. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks. Down in